Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God, when I can come and appear, when can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow? Because of the enemy's oppression, my adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Hi, guys. Oh, no, please. No. If, uh, if you see me moving a little stiff today, I mean, I would want you to know that, oh, I don't have it all together. So, uh, you know, yesterday, Linda and I were at a, at a group meeting with about 12 of our closest friends, and one of them went across and he was naming everybody, and somehow he forgot my name. Um, so apparently I am forgettable in some respects. And then we left that little gathering and we went to my, my grandson, my oldest, just turned six years old, which was a good, it was a pool party. And uh, I was holding my, my littlest grandson, who's a year and a half, talking to somebody and walking and I walked right into a tree. So I, I have a pretty good rash right here and when I start sweating, which is going to happen up here on stage because it's hot, it burns. So if you see me wincing. And then this morning I went with my son, uh, he and his wife just moved into their, their new house today. And when Linda and I were there last week getting it ready, we discovered that the washing machine was broken. And my son is a, an electrician and one of the dirtiest humans I've ever met in my life when he comes home from work. He's just filthy and they need a washing machine. So we went and found him one this morning. So we drove to Irvine in the truck. And the, the guy that was selling us the washing machine was a very nice man but he was also very meticulous and very particular about his house and, and literally watched us. Don't touch my wall. Don't, 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 don't. And so what happened is, is I think he put a little paranoia in Brett and I, and I was on the lower end walking this washing machine down using a dolly, and somehow the washing machine came off the dolly, fell, and I wanted to honor this man and his property, so I threw my body under the washing machine. It took me down the stairs a bit, and I don't know, like, if you can see, but your feet, like, they're supposed to go up a little bit. Mine go up a little further than yours, I promise. So both of my ankles are sprained. They're like, I'm rocking some serious cankles today. And uh, it, it hurts. But anyway, enough about me. 
So the good news I forgot to mention, though, my grandson that I walked into the tree with, he's fine. He didn't hit the tree at all. He's good to go. So with all that, let's pray. Father, I, I'm just going to thank you for getting me here today. It was, a, it was a bumpy journey. But in all seriousness, Lord, we, we, we're just thankful to be able to gather in, uh, in your house for you. And, and Lord, I just pray that this message today, that it, it be not about me. Because I know when I prepare that I'm, I'm often, I'm worried about how something's going to sound or how even I'm going to look. And Lord, it's not important. What's important is that your message is heard, your message is heard clearly, and that, that, that the people listening to the message, that their hearts are softened and it makes them more eager to know you. So that's my prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you, Michaela, for reading that psalm. I don't know what your perception of it was, but for me, it's a little bit of a doozy, right? It's a lot of, a lot of woe me and woozy woo woo type stuff. Um, and that song, it's, it's known, like, you know, people give titles to things. And the title for that song, it's called Longing for God. And another way of saying that is maybe yearning for God, um, desiring God thirsting for God, but what we want to get out of this is that it's, it's doing all of those things as the most important thing. And so I'd like to ask you all a favor. If you have your Bible, great. If not, I know everybody here probably has a smartphone. Um, that, that includes the three-year-old somehow. It's a crazy world we live in. So I would just like you to turn to, to Psalm 42 and have that available because I'm going to bounce around a little bit. I hope this makes sense to you. It, it does make sense to my slightly twisted mind. And uh, yeah, I think just being able to look at it and refresh yourself might be beneficial. So this is another psalm um, that mentions the sons of Korah, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And if you weren't here, uh, the guy that taught it did a fantastic job. And if you don't remember him, that's because he's forgettable. That was me. And so I would encourage you to go back to Psalm 46 a couple of weeks ago and listen to that teaching because the sons of Korah actually have a very fascinating story. And so we're not going to cover all that ground again. But there are 11 different Psalms that have a starting off point with the sons of Korah. And there's some debate over which Psalms the sons of Korah may have written versus which were, were just sung by them. And there's maybe some instances where it was both, right? You know, different scholars have different ideas, and, and part of that is because the title Sons of Korah is multi-generational. So this is, this is a little TMI, but you're going to like this. My, my dad's name is Herb, and his dad's name is Herb, meaning if my dad and his brother got together and sang a song, it would have been put together by the Sons of Herb. And Again, if my brother and I got together and sang a song, it would have been, we would have been sons of Herb and go on and go on and go on because it's generational, right? And so all of the sons of Herb in a historical sense would be getting credit for this, for singing this song. And so I don't, I don't really know where in the order some of these are, but I, I do want to just point out that I'm really thankful for my mom because she made me a Brian and not a Herb. Um, most people believe that Psalm 42 was written by King David. He's the second king of Israel. And if you, if you looked at the words of that psalm, you probably saw that it's deeply personal. 
And it's an honest confession of a, a man whose soul is in deep pain and distress. You know, he's, he's simultaneously racked by hope and fear, by, both, by also joy and sorrow. And in a way, it goes back and forth, and we'll point this out a little, a little more in depth, that it's almost as if he's arguing with himself. And if you can flash back to that old Hollywood trope where you had, you know, a good angel and a bad angel on each shoulder, and they were arguing back and forth, and the person's going back and forth trying to listen to them. In modern-day language, psychologists refer to this sometimes with an illustration of two brains. You know, they might call it a, a logical brain and an emotional brain. And I just want to point out that both of those sides of the brain are crucial to a healthy person. But sometimes they're at odds with each other. And when I went through the psalm, that's what I felt. I felt that David's, the two sides of his brain were at odds with each other, and it was almost as if he was arguing and didn't know what to do. So I came up with a simple exercise. I'm hoping it works. I'm hoping it resonates. But I want you all to imagine, if you can, that you are a business person. And you've been working really hard to finalize a deal. You know, you've put a lot of, a lot of labor, a lot of sweat, equity into this. And it's coming up. <clears throat> you can see the deal. It's right here. You can feel it. Everything's looking good. And you sit down across the, from the person that you're ready to do this deal with. And as you're talking, as you're about to sign the paperwork, the person looks across at you and insults your mom. And I mean not a soft insult, a really hard personal insult. And so my question is, what, what would you do with that deal? What would you do if that deal was only for $10? At least for me, that's an easy decision. But what would you do if that deal was for millions of dollars? Some of us would probably say, sorry, mom, right? So we're dealing with two sides of our brain. There's the emotional side and there's the logical side. And so as David starts off in verse one, he says, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? Imagine again, if you can, that you're on the run. You're being chased. Maybe the deer here is being chased by a hunter or a predator of some sort. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, maybe David is being chased by his own son, Absalom, who we, we know tried to kill him near the end of his life and take over his kingdom. And as you run, you get tired, right? You have to stop. You have to take a break. You thirst. You pant. And I, I find it an interesting use of the word here, thirst, in this context, because I, I, was, I thought to myself, what is thirst? Do you ever wonder what it is to thirst? So when I'm thirsty, I fix my thirst by getting a glass of water. And so if, if that's a reasonable metaphor, then, then thirst is what led me or brought me to something that I thought would give me comfort, right? That thirst was a desire or a craving that drove me to seek out that water. And it drives all of us in our own ways for different types of comfort. So sometimes, though, we have to acknowledge that that craving, that thirst, like water, can be good, but that thirst can also be really bad. 
And it's up to us to discern which thirst to pay attention to and which thirst to push away or even ignore. And so our, our first point tonight, it, it may not be the best grammar, but I want you to choose your thirst by using your face. Right? Some thirsts are meant to embrace and some thirsts are, are meant to ignore. Because David is telling us here that there's only one sure place that we can fulfill our thirst. And that's where faith comes in. Think of faith not in the necessarily the modern definition of it, but think of faith as an experience. It's something that draws on both sides of your brain. And our experiences should help us dictate which thirst we embrace and which we avoid. So for instance, I think I'm not alone if I, if I said that sometimes greed, control, power, popularity are all things that I occasionally thirst for. But my experience, hopefully our experience, tells us that if I, if I act out on that thirst, we'll be ruined. Right? Because we have a perfect line to follow, and when we bend, which is our sin, we bend from that perfect line, we have troubles. And we know because of original sin, because the nature of fallen man, that our inclination now is to never be satisfied. We can, we can, we can never be, our thirst can never be quenched entirely. There's an old saying that says, um, you are what you eat, but I think better stated, it's you become what you thirst for. And so if, if we want to be wicked, we thirst for things that God says are wicked. And if we want to be godly, then we need to thirst intentionally for him. So I know I'm a little different generation than most of y'all, but if I said to you, um, one, one ring to rule them all, I think most of you would probably have an image or a picture of a, of a healthy thirst and an unhealthy thirst, right? But David in his psalm here says, I thirst for God. When can I come and appear before God? Well, that's a specific reference to a, a little slightly different way of thinking on how we approach God. Because in the Old Testament, appearing before God meant being in his presence by going to temple. And you would often do that with other believers. So here, David, he's run away. He's hiding. He's like a deer pursued. And he's alone. And he misses, he misses you guys. He misses his community. And he wants them around. And he wants to be with them and go to temple and be in God's presence. You know, it's, it's different for us now because as we, as we learned in Acts, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to comfort and guide us. And we have each other on these things. But David didn't, didn't necessarily look at it the same way at that time. So I wonder, have, have you ever felt alone and scared and desperate? And in that, in that feeling, what was it that you thirsted for? Because I, I want to I point out, I want to make it abundantly clear that it's important for us as children of God to keep him at our center, to make him our primary thirst. And so let me give you a, a, a for instance here. I, I'm a big fan of counseling. If, 
for some reason in society there was this stigma about therapy, and I and I think that stigma's horrific. But there's a there's a little asterisk there because I'm not a big fan of secular counseling. Because secular counseling, the counselor that doesn't believe in God turns to you and says, How did that make you feel? And the Christ-centered counselor turns to you and says, in light of God's word, how does that make you think? And those questions are almost opposite directions of each other. And so, as that little stanza ended, David was surrounded by the secular counselor. And he says that they asked him, where is your God? And so we can read into that. We can, we can say that these people are honestly curious, or we can also say that these people, there's a good chance, were actually mocking him for his circumstances, right? <clears throat> so Jesus tells us in John 7, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Jesus offers us a way to quench our thirst. And he says to us, if we come to him and drink, not only will we, we be satisfied, but those around us will see the overflow. And that's what we as a community are working towards. You know, I, I touched on it, but part of the human condition is never being satisfied. My house isn't big enough. My car's not shiny enough. But that's probably because we're often drinking from the wrong fountain. You know, no matter how much we drink of worldly pleasure, at the end of the day, we still find ourselves thirsty. There's an entire book called Ecclesiastes that is about just that principle. My good buddy Logan and I were talking last week, and uh, we were having a good chat about a show on Netflix that we both had an interest in called Painkiller. And I'm not necessarily recommending the show because I don't know everybody's sensitivities and sensibilities, but I, I thought it was a really good show and it, was, it really it hurt my heart to watch it because it does a great job of showing the pain of addiction. You know, part of the show, there's subplots all throughout the show, but part of one of those subplots is you follow along with a small family of four, a mom, a dad, a big brother, and a little sister. And honestly, they're kind of a broken family. They're struggling to make ends meet. They're far from perfect, but they're trying. And at least in the show, they're portrayed as really sweet people. But one day, the dad gets injured, and he gets prescribed OxyContin. And as you follow along in the show, you see that the dad struggles to be pain-free. All he wants to do is be pain-free and do his job and provide for his family. And his first prescription are small pills. It's 20 milligrams. And then you see after a short time, that gets bumped up to 40 milligrams. And then a short time later, it gets bumped up to 60 milligrams. And he, he finally gets to the point where he, taking the pills orally is not helping him anymore. So he crushes them and he starts to snort them. And that's because the human body in this world is not satisfied. We always crave more. And we crave more to the point of our own destruction. Whether it's alcohol or opiates like OxyContin, pornography, greed. I mean, you name it. These are all sins of the same type in that they lead to our destruction. And as I mentioned before, they're all bends of the same type of sin that's, 
that sin is seeking something, thirsting for something that's not God. But Jesus, over and over, he tells us to look to him. And sometimes we just don't listen. In John 6, he tells us, I'm the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. He tells us he satisfies, but we don't believe. Why? Why do we continue to thirst for things that aren't good for us? It's because we're choosing, like I said, the wrong fountain. And our second point is, choose your thirst by talking to God, asking God to give you a greater thirst for him. Right? Our prayers, it's conversation with God. He knows what we're thinking. He knows where we're weak. Make that one of your prayers. God, make me more thirsty for you. So let's, let's look again at verse 4, how David does this. He says, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive processions to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. David's doing something interesting here in the middle of his agony. He's reflecting on a time when he was filled with joy. And I think what he's referring to is this scene out of 2 Samuel. It says, David again assembled in all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God and transported it. The ark had been captured by the Philistines. He's, he and his men have got it, and now they're bringing it back, and they're joyful. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourine, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So in my way of looking at things, we all, we've probably all heard that saying, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, Right? Well, those, those who do know their history and can reflect on it, like David is reflecting his good history, it's like looking at an old family photo and enjoying the memory and being strengthened by it. But that doesn't mean it's, it's easy. That doesn't mean it solves it. Because David, just like us, is human. And so in, in verse 5, he says, Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. You see, David is wise enough to know that his view of God is limited. But God's view of him, God's view of us, is unlimited. So let's talk battlefields, right? There's a good segue. If you're a history geek, and I'm a little bit of a history geek, when you read your old battles, you'll find that there was a favored place for the troops to be assembled to fight. And that favored place was typically a long slope. If you know your David and Goliath story, you'll know that Goliath went down to the bottom of a shallow valley and challenged the Israelites. You'll know that King Saul was up at the top of the hill looking down. You'll know that the Philistine commander was at the top of the other hill looking down. And that's because it allows the commanders, the people calling the shots, to stand up and get the best view of the battle that they can so they can make adjustments on the fly. 
With modern technology, it's a little different with our battles. I'm sure it's that way still in some, some places less sophisticated, but a modern example might be if you watch football. Football season's here, right guys? Especially college football. So if you watch your football game long enough, every football game there's a shot of the coach up in the booth. And that booth is at the very top of the stadium. And it's usually a couple of coaches and they're looking down at the stadium because they have a bird's eye view analyzing the game from above and radioing down what they see to the coaches. And if you watch, you'll typically see it's generally the quarterback, but not always. He gets a printout of what they're seeing up there. They're sending photos so they can better prepare to, to meet and beat the enemy. And this image, while it's, while it's weak, right, all analogies walk with a limp, it helps me understand my vision versus God's vision. Because we're all field-level players here. But God, he has the ultimate vantage point. And since I don't, I know it's wise for me to trust him. So why, why then does our trust slip? And I think for that, we're going to go to our old buddy C.S. Lewis. This is out of his book, Screw Tape Letters. I like to ask a question a lot of times, you know, who here has read Screw Tape Letters? How many people? Now, how many people have finished it? It's usually less hands. And since Screw Tape Letters is all about looking at the world through the eyes of the enemy, through the eyes of Satan, I wonder what it is that prevented you from finishing that book. I would encourage everybody to finish that book. But out of this, the demon, Screw Tape, who's talking to his nephew Wormwood and teaching him how to be a better demon, says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without milestones, without signposts. And so Lewis is trying to point out that the way to sin is that extra glance. It's that extra, yeah, nobody will know. It's the little things. It starts off really small. And so I would say the slightest bend on a wholesome path makes that path wholly unwholesome. My wife Linda is here. <clears throat> I love her very much. And I do a lot of things out of her for love. But if I'm being completely honest, sometimes I do things not out of my love for her, but because I want her to do things for me in return. You see, that's just a slight bend. It doesn't even sound like it's that harmful or that big a deal, but done enough times without acknowledging that reason, without asking for forgiveness, that bend, well, it's not so small. So imagine you have two lines, one on top of the other. And at first you can't even tell there's two lines there. It's just one line. But as the lines, as you travel down that line, you see one of them has a slight bend, a slight curve. And you start to see a separation. Uh, another word for separation is a deviation, which I think we kind of have an idea of another word for deviate. And if you follow those lines long enough, though, you'll see that eventually they're nowhere near each other. They don't, they're not even on the same page. And God, he's like that perfectly straight line. And our thirst is that second line, that line on top. And so that's why we have to be careful to listen to what, what our thirst is telling us. If we do it without the knowledge of God and the faith that he's our savior, it's called pride. 
And pride in us, pride that we're better, smarter, bigger than he is, is a significant problem. So what do we do with our thirst? Thirst can take the form of greed, money, control. Some people thirst for popularity, right? I think we have a new thing, at least this is how my generation looks at it. Might be wrong, but we seem to have a, peop uh, 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 a people who are looking to be perpetual victims, wanting everyone to feel sad for them. I don't want to take away from victimhood. I don't. But if everybody's a victim, nobody's a victim. I want to save our victim status for people that are truly victimized. Another form of immorality is our sexuality. We have to be careful with that. We have to hold to a line. It doesn't mean we're not loving. It doesn't mean we don't love and embrace people, but we have to hold to that line. Because the thirst, if we ignore the good thirst, God, and we pay attention to the bad thirst, and it bends us towards our own desires, it makes us big and God small. Scripture tells us in Proverbs 8, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. That's the Lord talking. I hate arrogant pride. And I want you to know that pride doesn't have to be bad. Because our next verse is 2 Corinthians 7.4. It's Paul talking. He says, I'm very frank with you. I'm very honest with you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with encouragement. I'm overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. So pride doesn't have to be a bad thing. It just depends on the thirst that's pulling us. So I submit to you that God doesn't call us to obey our thirst. Like that first point says, he calls us to choose our thirst. And he wants us to thirst for him. Verses 6 through 8. And this is David again. I'm deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. Other versions translate deeply depressed as cast down. And if you'll remember from that teaching at the beginning of July on Psalm 23, we talked about cast down is actually a term that English shepherds used that means a sheep has fallen and is literally can't get up, a lot like the commercial. Um, and because of this, the sheep needs help to get back on its feet. And so imagine David, the retired shepherd, is feeling so vulnerable that he can't do it on his own power. He's asking God for help. He's begging for help. And to prepare, prepare himself for rescue, he praises God. You might say he takes his eye off of his misery and he puts it on the ball. He puts it on the right thing. But he's still in great pain and he cries out, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and billows have swept over me. And remember, Scripture uses large or fast bodies of water as symbols of fear. 
But David knows that the waters are controlled by God. He even calls them your waterfalls. So the thing that David fears, the thing that that people found scary beyond comprehension, David recognized that God has control of them. And so sometimes, sometimes the troubles that come our way are just unimaginable and they feel unbearable. And I, I don't have an easy answer for those things. I'm just so sorry. But sometimes the troubles that come our way, it's possible that they're from God himself. And I know that might, might have a little bit of a sting in it. And I, and I, wish, I, wish, that wasn't, I wish that wasn't a message that I, I, I had to deliver. But I'm, I'm not saying all the troubles are for God, but I'm saying couldn't he or wouldn't he maybe use some of those troubles to help shape us for the future? I know I can look back at some of my darkest days, and now I can see how they, they prepared me for a different path or prepared me for a, a better future. You know, it's, it's a little bit like this for the parents in the room. One of the best things you can do to raise healthy kids is occasionally let them fail. If your kids never get in trouble, if, if you laugh off all their sins and, the, and they never feel consequences of their poor behavior, I promise you they're still going to fail later in life, but it's going to be at an older age. And they're not going to have a loving support network of a mom and dad to come alongside them and get them through those those pains and those consequences. And so if we hurt and thirst in the right direction, God will comfort us. I'm not saying it's going to be immediately or next week or even this year, but God waits there and he desires to comfort us. You know, we talked two weeks ago about the difference between the city of man and the city of God. Even if your ultimate comfort is decades away, God will comfort you in the city of God. And he wants me to prepare for his city. He wants me to prepare to be with him by starting off with prayer. I don't know about you, but I'm often at my lowest when I put my head on my pillow. I don't know, there's something about all the stimulus around me being off, my room being peacefully dark and very silent, and then all the memories, all the frustrations, all the pains come flooding in. And it's there, I fail a lot, believe me, but it's there that I try to do one of two things. I try to pray to my God and I try to be honest with him what I'm feeling, even if it's not very flattering, even if it's full of frustration, And if I can't do that, because sometimes I've been so weak that I felt I couldn't even prayer, at least I know these hymns. I can lay there with my head on my pillow and I can sing God's words because some person much cleverer than I put a tune to them and put a rhyme to them. And it helps still my heart and it helps me know that I'm not that big a deal, that that God is there. Verses 9 and 10, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
That's a lot. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? There's that either lack of knowledge or mocking again. But if, if it's still up there, yep. Verse 9, there's an interesting contradiction, right? At the same time, David says, you've forgotten me. Why have you forgotten me? He also says that you're my rock. And I think, this, I think it's possible here that he's pointing out the difference in those two sides of the brain that we talked about at the beginning. You see, what we thirst for is often an emotional brain. And we need to kick in our logical brain, our thinking brain, and help us with that. Because that, that emotional brain is a compass. But here's the thing about compasses. They just as easily point us in the wrong direction as the right one. The compass doesn't say that north is the right way to go. It just says north. And we need things external to our compass, knowledge, evidence, faith, a map, to know if our compass is leading us deeper into the desert or towards the safety of God and his community. So turn your thirst to God. Let him be your compass. But know his system. Know his map. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I don't know if you saw it, but verse 11 is the same thing as verse 5. This is a song after all, right? But it also looks to me like David's emotional brain and logical brain are still battling it out. His mind goes back and forth, left and right. His faith is being tested, but he works through it and he clings tightly to his God. We pointed out a little bit ago that Jesus called on people to believe in him, but he also called on them to have faith in him. His opening words in the Gospel of Mark are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is basically saying to them, you know all the signs. Don't you see that I fulfill them? He's pointing to prophecy. He's pointing to, to where their faith was. And he's pointing to himself and he says, I'm here. I'm God. A, a well-known atheist, <clears throat> we won't name him, tells us a case can be made that faith is one of the world's evils. So an atheist doesn't believe in God. Faith, faith is one of the world's evils. And he defines faith as this faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. I want to make sure we heard that. Faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. And I want you to know that's a really dishonest definition of faith. And that's not how Jesus... That's not how our scriptures define faith, and neither should we. Our, our third point is all about faith. And so before I define faith, I want you to know that, that you quench your thirst by your faith and having your faith 
pointed rightly, having our faith pointed to Jesus. Because whether we realize it, not, realize it or not, faith is relational and it's experiential. When I married Linda, <clears throat> there was no proof that she could love me for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. But there was evidence that made that step of trust reasonable. And all these many years later, there's still no proof that she's going to love me going forward because by definition, the future is unseen and unprovable. But I, I have great faith in her that she's going to continue to love me because she's proven to be true and trustworthy and reliable. So you see, my faith is not blind, even though I can't, I can't touch it. It's not a flame I can extinguish or light up, but it's very provable. Faith, you might say, is it's not the opposite of reason, as our atheist friend said. It's not the opposite of, of reason and evidence. It's actually the conclusion of reason and evidence. In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews, and most scholars think he's, it's probably a sermon. And if you think my sermons are long-winded, Hebrews would take a lot longer. But um, he's teaching to a church that's going through a very painful time. And the author says this about faith. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And I know a lot of non-believers take that out of context. So I want to give you some context. He's not saying hope and faith are the same. He's saying just the opposite. The author goes through the history of the church, what's lovingly called the Hebrews Hall of Faith, and he names 21 figures. He names people like Noah and Moses and David and Enoch. And he points out that, that God made promises to each one of those figures all of these respected people, and not only was their faith justified, but their faith was exceeded. And here's how, here's how he talks about those 21 saints a few verses later. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying their faith was not only rewarded, but was exceeded. And it was exceeded because of Christ. Christ is the gift that is better than what was promised. The author is saying, you know, God gave us his son, raised that son to glory, and can be trusted to do what he's promised. You know, I would encourage you to go back and read that section in Hebrews and really what it reminded me of is a courtroom. And all of those 21 people are witnesses to God's glory and goodness. Another famous passage on faith comes from John 20. <clears throat> At this point, Jesus has been crucified. His disciples are disoriented, freaked out, scattered, and Jesus appears to some of them and later, those same disciples meet up and they tell Thomas, some of us might know him better as Doubting Thomas, that they saw Jesus. And Thomas says he's not going to believe unless he can see Jesus for himself. Here's Thomas's exact quote. But Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas, he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. That's a huge fail. Thomas is saying, I don't care what you tell me. I'll never believe. In that moment, he'd made a decision not to trust his best friends, his closest friends, people he'd spent years with, done miracles with. But Jesus puts Thomas to the test a week later when he says, a week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hands and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Don't miss that. Because you have seen me, you have believed. That line, again, is taken out of context all the time. That line is the one that people think means faith and evidence are opposites. But if you look closely, Jesus is really saying, shame on you, Thomas. Shame on you for needing evidence. Blessed are those who believe without having to touch me. He's criticizing Thomas for thinking the only way of knowing anything is by seeing and touching it's called a lack of faith. If we decide only to believe what we can see and touch and reject what comes to us by good and reliable testimony, our society is going to change drastically because that's how our courtrooms in many instances operate. That's how <clears throat> our history books often operate. For the most part, both of those institutions are deemed reliable and good, and they're often based on testimony. So if I asked you, who here has heard of Alexander the Great? I've got to think we've all heard of Alexander the Great. We may not know a lot about him, but we know him. But did you know that nobody doubts his existence? And were you aware there's far more historical evidence for the personhood of Jesus than there is our buddy Alex? Far more. It's not, honestly, it's not even close. Alexander the Great's first book about him was written 500 years after his death. <clears throat> and how about science? That seems to be a big buzzword lately. And unless we're scientists ourselves, most of what we believe in science is based on testimony, good testimony. I'm not, I'm not down on science anyway. I'm so thankful for science. I actually may have to go get, see science about my ankle in a little bit. But whether, we, you know, whether through a book we, we deem trustworthy or an authority figure in our lives, seen as believing is actually counter science and often narrow-minded. So let me give you a better de uh, dictionary definition of faith. This is out of Oxford's dictionary. And it's interesting what happens to society and culture, right? We change definitions based on cultural norms and expectations. 
And so this, is, this isn't the first definition. This is the seventh. I think you should know that. But I think this is the right one. It says, faith is belief based on evidence, testimony, or authority. Faith is belief based on evidence, testimony, or authority. And I think that's an outstanding definition of the Christian faith. We have evidence. We have testimony. We have authority. You see, David found himself in trouble, whether it was running from Absalom or King Saul or one of the other troubles he found himself. And he found himself thirsting for answers and solutions. He had doubts that he worked through. He had anguish. He, he says, I, I've eaten my tears. He had sleepless nights. But when his thoughts begin to bend, when his thoughts begin to take him to places that were not good for him, were not good for any man, remember, he focused back to a time with God when they were celebrating when he had joy. Because stronger than David's bent towards sin was his faith. And as he points out, God is his rock. And David's faith was rock solid in the belief that the evidence, testimony, and authority of his life, the ultimate authority, is God. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.